So we are in uh, Romans chapter 1, and we're going to be picking up in verse uh, 18 this morning. Um, the, the theme of our, our study is grace and holiness, you know, and the idea behind it is that we truly understand um, the full picture of what it means to be a Christian, you know, that we don't take one um, part of it and, and, and live in that and then completely ignore an equally important part of it. And so uh, grace, which is the part that obviously we, um, we, we are thankful for and we embrace and, and we love and we need, uh, and that is the, the very core and essence of, of our salvation, uh, that's the easy part. You know, we love that. But then holiness, that's the part where uh, we're transformed, the part where uh, we allow God to have access into the deepest recesses of who we are and to change things there and to make us something we're not. Uh, and we allow God to offend us because he offends our, our, our personality, who we are by nature. You know, when we hold that against Christ, we recognize that we're unholy. We recognize that, that there's a problem. And if we're unwilling to, to deal with that in our pride, you know, then grace becomes of no effect because uh, the grace of God, as Paul says it in the earlier verses, what we read last time in Romans, is that he's given us grace for obedience. So part of grace is God giving us, giving us the grace to open our hearts to allow him to do what he needs to do in our lives uh, so that we're no longer what we were and that we're becoming what we are. And so, grace and holiness. Now, the theme of Romans and how it applies to that is that Paul, in this letter, the entirety of it, is seeking to define for us with completeness exactly what the gospel is. That is the theme. And so if you're kind of taking notes or in your mind you're, you're like me and you, you need, uh, you want to grab on to, 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 to the you know, the heart and, and the theme and the root of what's being spoken of here, that is Paul's theme, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And thus he says it as he introduces it in verse 15, talking to the Romans, he says to them there that he is ready to preach the gospel to them that are at Rome. That's what he has. That's his substance. That's his treasure that he brings. It's what God gave to him. It is the gospel. And he says, I want to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Then in verse 16, he says that he is not ashamed of the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of it. And the reason I'm not ashamed of it is because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. So tucked inside of this gospel, this mysterious word, there is a power, there's a force, there's something that comes behind it that is effective, and when it comes into a person's life by faith, there's a definite change that's affected within that life. It does something. Uh, one time I heard a man who uh, was speaking to a large group of people. And um, he was a minute or two late um, c coming into his place uh, behind the podium. And as he came in a minute or two late, he apologized for his tardiness. And he said that you'll have to forgive me for being late here tonight. As I was crossing the road coming into the building, I was struck head on by a Mack truck that was going at full speed. So please forgive me for being late. And then he just continued on with, uh, you know, giving his remarks and his greetings and his introductions. And then he paused for a minute and he said, did anybody find it odd that I said to you a moment ago that I was struck by a Mack truck? 
uh, at full speed, head on, as I was coming in here tonight. And he, he said, that, what was it that struck you about those comments is that when you look at my visual appearance, I bear no evidence at all uh, in, in my appearance that I was struck by a Mack truck at full speed while I was crossing the road to come in here right now. And he says, I know that that was a source of confusion to you. And he said, but I did that on purpose because it represents the theme of what I want to talk to you about tonight. And he says is that there are many people that profess that they have had an encounter with the living God. They profess that they have been saved, that Jesus Christ has come into their lives and that they are no longer what they once were. And yet when you look at many of the lives that make that profession that God has come into their life, there's no visual evidence that, that that has actually happened. That when you look at that person's life and examine what that life is, there's no difference between what they were prior to that profession and what they are now. And that should be a source of confusion. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Meaning that when the power of God comes into a person's life, it affects change in that life. That person is not what they were on the other side of that experience. And for a person to make that profession and yet to have no visual or discernible effect or change in their life on the other side of it, there's a cause for question there. And so Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. You say, well, what is the power that it affects within the life? He says it, he answers it in verse 17 when he says, for therein, in what? In the gospel. For therein is, and here's the power, the righteousness of God revealed. And so what the gospel affects, what the gospel does is that it produces righteousness. Now righteousness means two different things in the context of the gospel or the context of the New Testament. There is, first of all, and don't miss this, this is very important, there is, first of all, positional righteousness. And what positional righteousness means is that it means where I am positioned. And there's really only two positions in this context that a human being can be in. You can either be positioned in unrighteousness or you are positioned in righteousness. It's a status like you'd have on Facebook or something, you know. And you get two choices. You're either unrighteous or you are righteous. And that's a positional thing. And God is the one that determines that position in a person's life. Meaning that when God looks at every one of us here, we are declared by him to be in one of two places. There are not three. You are either unrighteous before God or you are righteous before God. It's one or the other. There's no middle ground. And God positions everyone in one of those two places. And what Paul is saying is that it is the gospel that can cause a person to be positioned in a status of righteousness before God. Now, there's a second meaning or context of righteousness, and that is practical or practicing righteousness. <laughs> If a person is positionally righteous, meaning that they're righteous in the eyes of God, then that righteousness is going to look like something. It's going to begin to show itself in their practice, the practical part of their life. 
And so it looks like something. And it's the gospel that brings that forward. And so what Paul wants us to understand and what it's essential for us to understand is what exactly is this gospel that brings us into this positional and then therefore practical righteousness within our lives, the ability to be right with God. And thus, this is the theme of Paul in this. Now, the righteousness of God, to be righteous in my standing means that I've been forgiven It means that I've been accepted, and it means that I have been justified. It means that my sin has been put away. So as we now know what the theme is, it's been introduced to us. Paul has told us what it is. Now he is going to take a long time, all the way up through chapter 12 of Romans, to explain to us what the gospel is. He's going to untie it for us. So he begins at the beginning, just like the yellow brick road, right? Where do we begin? Well, you begin where we begin, at the beginning. And so what's the beginning of the gospel? He tells us right off the bat, he doesn't waste a single word in verse 18. Notice what he says as he begins. He says, for the wrath of God. Now pause right there. That's where the gospel begins. The gospel begins with the wrath of God. You say, well, what in the world is the wrath of God? Wrath means anger. Wrath means temper. Wrath means violent emotion. It means indignation. It means trouble. It means problems. You say, well, that's not typically a word or a concept that I associate with God. Isn't God a God of love? Doesn't the Bible say that God is love, that he is light and in him is no darkness at all? I mean, don't we worship gentle Jesus, meek and mild, you know? I mean, what is, how do you equate a God of love with a God of wrath? What you need to understand is that wrath is equally a part of his nature with love. It's a part of who he reveals himself to be. When Moses asked God, what's your name? The name, of course, always represents the nature, who you are. And God said, I am. That was the generic answer that God gave Moses at the first. But a little bit later on in Moses' life, after Moses had some experience with God and some things had happened and and he had led the children of Israel for a while, they'd come out of Egypt and there was some history between God and Moses. There was a further revelation of God that God desired to give to Moses. And so God took Moses into a quiet place and Moses asked God, he said, God, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. I want to know you in a fuller capacity, a fuller way. Tell me, show me who you are. And God laughed at Moses and he said, Moses, no one, no one can see my face and live. No one can. If I showed you my glory, you would just die immediately. It would be way too intense for you. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock in the side of this mountain. I'm going to make my glory pass by it, and I will show you the hinder part of my glory, the last little shred of it. I'll show you that's the tiniest little piece. Moses said, okay, God, you know. (laughs) And so Moses is hidden. The glory of God passes by. God uncovers his eyes to see just a wisp of it. And as he does, the Lord speaks and declares, and he cries. He says, I am the Lord, the Lord gracious, merciful, slow to anger, rich in mercy, forgiving sin, and by no means pardoning the guilty. 
And I will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the fourth generation of them that hate me, yet showing mercy to thousands that love me and keep my covenants. As God revealed who he is, he revealed that he is a God of power and he is a God of mercy and a God of grace and a God of forgiveness. But he is a God who also will not pardon the guilty and that will visit iniquity. He is a God of wrath equally to being a God of righteousness. Wrath is a part of it. It's a part of his very nature. Well, who is the wrath of God revealed against? Paul goes on to tell us there, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against who? Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now mark those two things in your Bible. Is that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And so you ask the question, you say, well, who are the ungodly and who are the unrighteous among men? And here's the answer to that question. It's every human being that enters into this world with a heartbeat and blood flow. Every human being enters into this world unrighteous. You say, well, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound fair. What do you mean? Unrighteousness is the presence of sin. That's what it is. And because we are descendants of Adam and Eve, who were sinners, and who brought sin upon the human race, we are therefore born into this world, our status being unrighteous. That's what we are by nature and by birth. We are born into this world separated from God. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, we are all born sinners. Now the Bible says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He is without sin. And the two things cannot be in the same place at the same time. You cannot have righteousness linked together with unrighteousness. It doesn't make sense. They're in two totally different contexts. That's okay. So every one of us is born into this world separated from God. Not one person comes into this world knowing God. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, Verses 1 through 3, listen to what Paul says, because it describes this concept. He says that you, he has made alive, speaking to the righteous. He says, you, he has made alive, who were, past tense, dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein, in those sins, in time past, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, listen, among whom we all had our conversation or lifestyle in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, meaning that we were born this way, children of wrath, even as others." Every human being is born into this world under the wrath of God, having a status of unrighteousness because of original sin. Now, this is an important point, and it cannot be ignored. This is essential in the gospel. If you take this away from, from the gospel, it's a false gospel. It's not a real gospel. Because there are some people that believe that they have always been right with God since the time of their birth. 
Sometimes I'll talk to people and I'll say, well, tell me, what, at what point did you come into a saving knowledge of the Lord, wherein your sins were forgiven or you were born again? And they'll say, well, I've always been that way. I was raised in a Christian home. I've always known God my whole life. False. If that would be your answer to that question here today, you need to question whether or not you have been transferred from unrighteousness to righteousness. Because no one has always known God. We are all born into this world, alienated from God, separated from God. We're born enemies of God. We're unrighteous because of sin. That is why we have a sinful nature, because sin exists within us. So unless something happens at some point in our lives to truly transform us from this status of unrighteousness to a status of righteousness, then we are lost and separated from God. No one is born righteous. Something has to happen. And that's an important point in understanding what the gospel is. Now, no one, here's the second reason why it's important, is because no one can partake of the gospel, no one can be a beneficiary of the gospel, the righteousness of God, unless they first realize that they're under God's wrath. That's an important thing to realize, is that that's step one, is that you must realize, you and I must realize that we are alienated and separated from God, that we're under his wrath, and that it is impossible for a person to come from unrighteousness into righteousness without first realizing that they are a sinner and that they are separated from God. You cannot skip that step. To skip that step is to come in another way. Remember when Jesus said that? He said that all that came before me were thieves and robbers and those that get into this path another way other than coming through the door. You know, you must realize that we are without hope and without God in the world. And so he says that this is who the wrath of God is revealed against. It's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, and that is everyone. Now, what Paul the Apostle is going to do for the rest of chapter 1, then chapter 2, and chapter 3, is that he is going to prove as a lawyer that the whole world is guilty before God. He's going to take every single type of person that there is, and he is going to prove them and condemn them to be guilty before God. And the conclusion that he's going to come to is in chapter 3, verse 23, where he says, Therefore, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But he's not going to just jump right to that. He's going to prove it. He, he's going to take the time to show it. Now, chapter 1, he's going to talk about the godless individual. The person who makes no profession of faith, the person who says that I don't believe in religion at all, I don't, you know, categorize myself with it, but if there's a God, I'm okay with him. You know, the person who just uh, thinks that, that we would call them the heathen. And so that person is who Paul's going to talk to uh, in a very broad sense and yet a very specific sense throughout the rest of the chapter. Now, notice what he says concerning them, first of all, at the end of verse 18. He says that they hold the truth in unrighteousness. Or if you have a New King James, the word is suppress. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So what does that mean, that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness? It means that they don't want to know the truth about their condition, nor 
concerning the solution to that condition because they desire to live in unrighteousness. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, I believe that God is very patient with someone who is a true agnostic. Now, an agnostic is someone who says, I don't know, meaning that they, they, they're not saying that, that, that there is no God. They're not the atheist that says, I don't believe in God. I, you know, but they're saying, I don't know. I don't, I don't have enough evidence or I'm still trying to figure it out. There's things going on in my life. But in honesty of heart, I'm an agnostic. I don't know. And I believe that that person, God has extreme patience with them. They're not righteous. They're not saved. If they die, they go to hell. But God is patient with the agnostic. When I was 14 years old, that was the first time I was ever exposed to the gospel. There was someone who I was sitting next to that shared with me the things of Jesus, and there was a change in their life. I could both see the gospel lived out in them, and I could hear what they, the things that they were saying to me. I was 14 years old, a freshman in high school. For the next four years, God was gracious to bring people into my life, one after the next, that were Christians, that would share with me, and that loved me enough to tell me the things of God. And during that time, I was a rejecting agnostic. I didn't know, but I didn't want. I was suppressing the truth. When I was 18 years old, God brought me to a rock and a hard place where he gave me an ultimatum and he set me to choose whether or not I would accept and receive or whether I would reject and deny. And I remember the very moment when Georgia, who now is my wife, who then was my girlfriend, she had been born again in six months that we were apart. And she came back from her first semester in college and she said to me, she said, I love you. She said, I can't imagine my life without you. She said, but if you don't know Jesus, then it won't work. She says, it's not that I wouldn't want to try, but she says, I just know that we'd be building on different blueprints and our futures wouldn't work. And she said, will you pray with me? Moment of decision. And I said, no, that's never going to be who I am. I can't do that. And we broke up that day and I didn't realize it at the time. I realize it now looking back, but that was the day that I rejected. I moved from agnostic, I don't know, to I know, and I'm saying no. And something happened at that moment in my life. I realize it now, didn't realize it then, is that I went from God's patience to God's wrath. He said, okay. And he took his hand off my life in the grace that I had at that time. And I watched from that point, I went into a two-year tailspin, wherein every good thing I had going for me was slowly being removed from my life, including my mental capacities and faculties and all. It was, he was stripping it away. And the amazing thing was that under the surface, I knew it. I knew what was happening. And yet I wanted to suppress the truth because I loved my sin. I didn't want to, I knew that if I gave my life to Christ, that he was going to deal with those areas of my life and I didn't want him to. And so I suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. God is patient with the agnostic, but with the rejecter, they begin to experience the wrath of God. Well, what are the excuses that the... Um, Heathen, the suppressor, will try to have to suppress the truth. The first thing 
that Paul does now is that he removes their excuses. He says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The first excuse, or the first, what's the, the word? The first um, thing that Paul gives to them that removes their excuse is conscience. Is that they're accountable to what's in their conscience. Notice in verse 19. He says, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it to them. The first evidence that God is real uh, in a person's life, in every human's life, is the, the, just the existence of their own human conscience. Remember when Adam and Eve in the garden, what did God say? He said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And the first thing that happened when they partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the very first thing that happened, it says that they knew that they were naked. They knew that they were naked. And their conscience was awakened. And when God came to them and he said, why are you hiding? They said that we were naked and, and afraid and therefore we hid ourselves in the garden. And God's question to them, and this is important because God's not stupid. God doesn't ask a question because he needs them to give an answer. He said, how did you know that you were naked? This is condemnation about to come. They're about to condemn themselves. He said, did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat? Here's, here's the condemnation. No one had to tell them that they were naked. They knew it. Conscience came alive. They knew it without being told. And the conscience that everyone is born with testifies to us that there is a God, whether someone tells us about that God or not. When I was growing up, I knew there was a God. I talked to him. I didn't know him. I would beg him for things, you know, but I knew in my conscience that there was a God. I refused him. I also knew, even as a child, good and evil. I knew what was right and knew what was wrong. I knew when I was doing something wrong. And I watch my kids now, and it's amazing that they have a conscience. Hey, did you do this? And they get that stone cold, like everything's... Not rocky. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> no, <laughs> he's born again, you know. <laughs> Conscience is enough to condemn a person to hell whether or not they ever hear the gospel from an outside source. What about the pygmy who lives on the island that never hears the gospel? Do they have a heartbeat? Are they a living soul? Then they have a conscience and they will be held accountable according to what they do with that conscience. The second witness that removes the excuse that tries to suppress the truth is given to us in verse 20. He says, For the invisible things of him of God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So if conscience isn't enough to bring a person to a knowledge of salvation, then creation ought to be. The intricacy, the complexity, the order, the depth, the harmony, of the order of the systems, all of it testifies to the fact that there is a creator. And God will hold a person accountable. Now, what's amazing is that it says, not only does creation testify that there is a God, but it testifies who that God is. It says even his eternal power in Godhead. You ever been like within 50 feet of a lightning strike? You know, or 100 feet, you know? You know, you probably have, you know, when it's like simultaneous, the crack in the, in the flash, and it's so loud, it shakes you to the core, right? You, 
And, and, and every now and again, we see something that's just like a visible manifestation of the power of God. Or a fire that gets out of control, you know? Or Niagara Falls, or just something. You just see it, and you're like, oh my goodness. And you feel your vulnerability, just how, how scary things are. Or you ever been knocked over by a giant wave, and it... And it and it gives you one of those, and you got ear full of sand and the whole thing. And that's one wave. And you can just get overwhelmed by it. You're like, oh, my goodness. His power and his Godhead, his character is revealed in creation. That he is good, that he is kind, and that he's strong. That he's mighty, that he's righteous. All of it is revealed by God in creation. And creation is enough to condemn a person to hell forever though they never hear the gospel spoken of out, of out of a person's mouth. When we get to Romans chapter 10, Paul is going to say that again. He's going to say, listen, if someone has ever looked up in the sky and seen the stars, then they're condemned if they refuse Jesus Christ. You say, that's a stretch. Paul, it's in the Bible. We'll talk about it when we get there, you know. So he removes their excuses, conscience, creation... And now what are the results of someone who suppresses the truth? What happens in the life of someone when they suppress the truth and they don't want to give themselves to it? Notice in verse 21. He says, because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful, but they became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, an interesting thing, the first time that the wrath of God is really revealed in the scripture is in Sodom and Gomorrah, in Genesis chapter 19. And we all know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We know what their sin was, uh, what they're known for, and what God judged them for, you know. And it's the first time the wrath of God is really manifested and, and that God just smoked them. I mean, he just, fire came down from heaven. It consumed the city. There was pillars of salt. There was massive destruction. I mean, it was just a, a, a demonstration of the wrath of God. Now, what Paul tells us here, because he's going to use Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of what happens when you, you know, decide that you want to suppress truth and just go your own way in life. What he tells us in verse 21 that we don't get from Genesis 19 is that at one point, Sodom and Gomorrah was a city that knew the Lord. He says, for when they knew God. We're going to find out in a second. He's clearly talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. But when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. It says, neither were they thankful, but they became vain in their ima imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. In Ezekiel chapter 16, the prophet Ezekiel, verse 49 he says something by the Spirit of God that's incredibly interesting. He says that the sin of Sodom was, and he says, pride, fullness of bread, idleness of time, and that she didn't strengthen the hand of the poor. That was the sin of Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, idleness of time, and she did not strengthen the hand of the poor. You say, well, I've read Genesis 19, and uh, I've heard about Sodom and Gomorrah, and that ain't the sin of Sodom. You know, <laughs> That's where it began. What became Sodom and what Sodom is known for began with a place that knew God, but when they knew God, the first thing that happened is that they glorified him not as God, meaning that other things crept into their lives that became more important than him, the one who had blessed them in their situation and in their setting. They didn't glorify him as God. 
And what that became, the second step in the progression, is that they became unthankful. So first, now there's things in front of God and priority in my life. Now I'm not thankful anymore for the things that God has given me. Rather, I'm complaining and constantly looking at the things that I don't have. So I'm not glorifying him as God. No longer am I thankful. And what that then led to, number three, is that they became vain in their imaginations. Vain means empty, and your imaginations are your ambitions, your thoughts, your affections, the things that you think about and that take over, and those things became empty, meaning that they began to pursue emptiness in their lives. So he's no longer Lord and first. I'm no longer thankful for the goodness that he's shown And I'm going to pursue things that in the end cannot satisfy, they never were designed to, and that's the direction that I'm going to move my life into. They didn't glorify, they weren't thankful, they became vain. And then fourthly, it says that the result of all of that is then that their foolish heart was darkened. Now what does it mean that a heart is darkened? It means that at one time there was light, right, inside, and that now the lights go out. And so they lose whole, the, the vision for life. They lose a sense for their path and their purpose. All of that just begins to dissipate. And where did it begin? Pride, fullness of bread, idleness of time, and a lack of concern for the poor. Describes this, doesn't it? Not only does it describe the United States of America, but it describes the church in the United States of America. It describes so much of the society that we live in. And that's how Sodom became Sodom. That's where it began. It's so important for us, the church, for us who are saved, for us who do know him, is that we continually glorify him as God in our lives. That we do not allow other things to creep in and become affections that are more important to us, higher than, or that exceed our love for God. Because once they do, we have taken the first step in a sliding progression that leads to depravity on an unprecedented level. We will next become unthankful. We will next become vain. We will next become darkened. We'll lose vision for our lives. That's what happened in Sodom. Well, what happened then? It says in verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. In other words, you could translate it, in wisdom, they became foolish. They became so smart that they became smarter than God. Now listen, guys, I'm going to tell you a secret. and Maybe this is the only thing you need to hear here hear this morning. Anything you do or I do without God equals foolish. It could be the wisest, most conventionally wise thing that that is un, that you could do in a situation or with a thing leave god out and see what happens god in a situation is like oil in a in a in a car a, a motor vehicle engine is an extremely wise invention isn't it i mean the way it works and all the moving parts but try to run it without oil see what happens see how wise that creation becomes leave god out of one part of your life and just see what happens Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They thought, well, we don't need God. We can do this on our own. And so they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, to birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. They made a God now in their own image. Think about, for one minute, our God. And think about the size of our God. I mean, the Bible says that the universe spans his hand, right? He measures it with a span. The whole universe spans his hand. 
Think about the intricacy that's in a simple cell. Look at it under a microscope and examine it. Take a piece of human hair, pluck it out, look at it under a microscope and an electron microscope, and you see what makes it up. You see what's crawling on it. <laughs> right? and, and you begin to examine the depths of the wisdom and the understanding of our God. And the fact that he declares that he knows the number of hairs on each one of our heads, which is a thing that's changing constantly for everyone in this room. <laughs> and you think about the depths of his wisdom and, and all that he's done and all that he is. And now I'm going to put that aside and I'm going to create a God in my image. Anytime a person creates a God, that God must be less than what they are. That's why you know, God creates us. We are less than what he is. So think about what you're trading away when you trade the true and the living God for some other concept of God that you've created in your own image. You have two choices. You can either submit to the fact that you've been created in his image, or you can create a new God in your own. Well, I want my God to be this way. I don't want God that does. I don't, I don't want God that doesn't like sin. I don't want God that condemns. The, you know, I want. What's the next step? Notice verse 24. Wherefore, God also gave them up to, first of all, uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts. Uncleanness is spiritual infection, meaning that their hearts became infected with sin to some degree. Now, this word that Paul uses for uncleanness is used 10 times in the New Testament. And in almost every instance, its context is sexual uncleanness in some way. But it could mean more than that. It just means like a spiritual infection, that there's something that's marked unclean about a person's life. He uses it generically here, saying it's through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up. That's the second time he uses that phrase that he gave them up. He gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature, and likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was me. So how did Sodom become Sodom? First, it was denying God. Second of all, it was being given over to uncleanness, and then that uncleanness spread to vile affections, which then resulted in total depravity in, in this way of perversion sexually and homosexuality, descended into it. So it started way up here, and then it became as they denied God. When a person suppresses the truth and they deny God, they think that they're going to be able to control what happens to them and control the, the downward spiral of their sinful condition. You cannot control it. It will keep getting darker. It'll keep getting worse until it hits the bottom of the barrel. And thus it became this. Now let's talk about this for just a minute, this whole concept of homosexuality. You know, We talked about it on Wednesday night as to why. You say, well, why is God so against homosexuality? And the answer is because it pollutes the very image of God. It says that man is made in the image of God, 
And that man is the combination of the male and the female. Male and female created he them, and he called their name Adam or man. So the marriage between a man and a woman, the unifying of the two, is a representation of the image of God and his completeness. And when you take a man and he marries a man or a woman and she marries a woman, what you've done is you've corrupted and polluted what God intended man to be. It's a perversion of his representation. Notice that it says at the end of verse 27, it says that they received in themselves that recompense or repayment of their error, which was meat. That word meat means fitting. It means fitting. It means that, that the, the repayment or the revenge was fitting with the crime. Now, there's a debate, and we've all heard it, is, is a person born into a homosexual lifestyle or is a person transformed into a homosexual lifestyle? Which is it? Are they born that way or do they become that way because of you know, their sin or because of abuse or because of the whole thing? You know what the answer is? The answer is yes. That there are some people that are born with that inclination to go in that direction. Just like there are certain people that are born with an inclination towards heterosexual sinfulness. And just like there are people that are born with an inclination towards substance abuse or power abuse or money love, greed. We're all born with sinful tendencies and every single one of us has an Achilles heel that we know would destroy our lives if it weren't for the grace of God and his preserving power in us. And so, yes, there are some people that are born that way, but that doesn't mean that my destiny is sealed in that way. I've been set free from so many of the vices that I brought into this Christian world. And God sets free. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, some of you used to be effeminate. That means homosexuals. And you are no longer. He can change that out of a, of a person. It is also true that a person can deprave themselves into that lifestyle. They weren't that way, and now they are, because the sin didn't satisfy. The porn didn't satisfy. The experiences didn't satisfy, so now I need to find newer and stranger things to satisfy what used to be, and it can result in someone coming into that lifestyle. Now, what's the result of that kind of a lifestyle? There is a physiological effect that a homosexual lifestyle has upon a human being. And what I mean by that is that there is a definite change that happens in a person's wiring, the way that they're wired when they give themselves and embrace that kind of a lifestyle. And we've all seen it. It's strange, but a man who embraces a homosexual lifestyle will become somewhat feminine in his mannerisms and his thinking and the way that he operates. A woman who gives herself to that type of a lifestyle will become masculine in her mannerisms and in her ways. There, there is something that happens. There's a change that happens within a person when they embrace that. You say, well, what's the deal with that? I mean, I was yesterday sitting in a place and someone walked by me. And there was absolutely no question just in, in their, their physical outward. You say, well, you're judging and profiling. Listen, Let's be real, right? It's recorded. I'm so going to get in trouble for this, you know. It's okay. Thank you. My, 
I got, just remind me to finish the thought by giving you my thoughts towards this lifestyle, you know. If I leave that out, then I really get in trouble, you know. <laughs> it says that the, the recompense or the repayment, the vengeance, is fitting with the crime, right? That's what God says. They received in themselves that repayment which was fitting. What the sin of homosexuality is, is, a, is that it misrepresents the person of God. It changes who he is, what he made us to represent. And the repayment that is received in the person that embraces that lifestyle is that God flips a switch and he changes what they are. There is a perversion of the glory of what they were designed to be and what they're designed to represent. Now, that doesn't mean that God can't switch it back should they repent and give their life to him. And he absolutely can, and he does, and he has. But there is a definite consequence for that lifestyle that's received in the physiology of the person that's embraced it. That's important to understand. Now, what's my personal attitude towards someone who's of a homosexual lifestyle? When I see them, or when I know or find out about it, I can tell you that I have a genuine compassion for that person. That it isn't like, oh, Oh, oh. Because you know what God sees when he looks at my sin? Oh, ah, oh, ah, oh, you know. No, there's a compassion because I recognize the deception. And I have known enough homosexuals that have come into the faith or that have just been purely honest about living that lifestyle to know that it's an extremely dark life, no matter how much they'll say otherwise or, or that it's a dark place to be. And so I have compassion, and I know that God can save, and I know that it's not the unpardonable sin, and that he'll forgive. But it is a bottom point for depravity to those that suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind, that means rejected, to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled with, and now here's where it ends up. Here's where sin ends up. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. Did he leave anything out? <laughs> Who, verse 32, knowing the judgment of God. That's powerful right there. Highlight it. Put parentheses around that phrase. They know the judgment of God. They already know it. That they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. That they not only partake of it, but they, they get their joy out of watching those things. I remember the first time I read this verse, the first thing that flashed into my mind when I did was the movies that I watch. You know, and the things that I could take pleasure in. And I have to ask myself, do I take pleasure in those that do such things? Well, I'm not doing it. I'm just watching it. You know, I'm just reading it or I'm just exposed to it. The further I get away from Hollywood the more I recognize how dark a thing it is, you know. It's amazing what happens. 
as you grow in the Lord, you know, and things. What are the conclusions of what we see here in chapter 1? Um, two things, and then, and then we're done. Two brief things. Number one, don't be deceived with a false assumption of salvation. Don't think that, okay, well, I raised my hand, I accepted Christ, you know, I have fire insurance now. Listen, the wrath of God is an essential realization in every life. Jesus put it like this. He said that when the Spirit comes into the world, the first thing that he's going to do is that he is going to convict the world of sin. And the first thing that has to happen in a human life before they can come to a saving knowledge of Christ is that they must be convicted of their sin. We did not get saved because we needed peace and joy and love and hope and I didn't want to be depressed anymore. That's not why we come to Jesus Christ. That's not why Jesus hung on a cross. He didn't hang on a cross because I have anxiety. Jesus hung on a cross because I'm a sinner alienated from God, and if something isn't done about it, I'm going to spend eternity in hell. And unless a person comes to the realization that they are not right with God and that that's a serious thing, then they cannot be saved by grace through faith in the cross. So don't be deceived into thinking that there can be a a salvation that's void of conviction and repentance. The wrath of God and the fact that I'm under it is essential. I must realize that. Thankfully, it's not the end of the story. You know, we don't, okay, well, I'm a sinner, so you know, I'm going to leave you there today. But <laughs> where we're going is obviously a much better place. You know? The other takeaway from this is this, is that in our sharing with people, in our endeavor to represent Christ and give away the gospel to others, we must be forthright about this issue of sin. We cannot, in our sharing with people, just say to them simply like, oh, yeah, well, just accept Christ. All you do is pray this prayer with me. Jesus loves you so much that he died on a cross for you. Will you accept him? It's not the full message. The weight of sin has to be laid upon us. If Jesus is the door, okay, that everyone must enter into, the wrath of God is the doormat that they must stand on before they enter through it. It's essential. And so in our sharing with people, we must be courageous enough and bold enough, yet in grace and with love, to be able to say to people, listen, your sins have separated you from God. You're a sinner. And if you keep living this lifestyle, not only are you going to destroy your earthly life, but you're going to be in hell forever. And the weight of that has to sink into a person. And the Holy Spirit comes behind it. And it's important that we understand that. 